For those remaining in the auditorium, please take your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. So we continue our walk through the book of Hebrews. Want again put our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and this morning in particular his glory. Some of you may be interested in watching shows where they appraise certain items. There are different shows that do this. One of the shows is the Antiques Road Show. Individuals bring paintings or vases, vases, however you pronounce that, or other items, and they have an appraiser there to tell them how much it is worth. There are two big reactions that we kind of wait for. The positive one is when somebody finds out that the item that they received from their grandparents or great-grandparents or was in the family uh, is worth a lot more than what they thought it was worth. It's real. It's authentic, and it has great value. Then, of course, there are those disappointing moments, and some of us relish those even more, when an individual has an item that they believe has great worth and great value, only to find out that it's not real. It's a copy. It's not authentic. It's not original. And the value is greatly devalued. This is... A reality for these appraisal shows, but I think it's also a reality for us even as we gather here this morning. This has been great, I hope, this morning thus far. We have enjoyed watching the baptisms, I hope and I pray. We have enjoyed watching or listening and singing and, and participating in the music and the lyrics on this Easter Sunday the question, though, that is before us today, which is always before us every day, is, is this real? Is this just something that we, as a group of people, have all decided that it makes us feel better about ourselves and about the situation surrounding us, and so we come together for some mutual support, we all pretend to believe the same thing, and we come together and we wish it were true, even though we're not entirely sure that it is? Or is this real? Is this true? Is Jesus Christ truly Son of God and Son of Man? Is He the God-Man? Is He really the perfect one of us? Did He really go to a cross? And did He really bear the Father's just wrath against our sin? Was He really buried? Did He really descend into hell as we saw in our theology forum a couple weeks ago? Did He really rise again from the dead on that Sunday so long ago, triumphing over sin and death? Is the tomb actually empty? Is our faith based on that which is real and factual? And I hope this morning all of us would say, Amen. <laughs> this isn't just something that we sing about and we celebrate on a yearly basis or even on a weekly basis. This is real. And it is to this that the author of Hebrews turns his attention because there are Jewish Christians that are questioning this. Is this real? Is this better than what we had before? What we had before wasn't perfect, but at least it was familiar. Is it okay? Is it good enough? Or is it something, or is it that we need something superior? Is there something better? And if there is, what is it? And can we trust it? 
Because understand the stakes, the stakes could not be higher. It is not just this life, but it is also the life to come. What is in the balance is our very souls. The author of Hebrews, the preacher, the pastor wants to assure those that are listening to him, that are reading this, their faith is not in vain. It's real, it's true, and it's glorious. So follow along with me if you would. Hebrews chapter 8. I want to read the entire chapter in your hearing this morning. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. Two simple points this morning, Jesus' glorious person and Jesus' glorious promises. The focus of this chapter is the same focus as the whole book. It is that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the Savior of all who repent and have faith in him. All of this is real. He's real, very real. And he is the only Savior, as we've heard repeatedly through the testimonies before the baptisms. Notice his glorious person in verses 1 through 7. He is the greatest high priest. This, of course, is a point that the author of Hebrews has been making up to this point and will continue even through the end of chapter 10 and beyond. But here he says, now this is the point. And in case we miss the point, (laughs) this is the point. We have such a high priest. Our faith is not without a high priest. It is not that the religion from before, the law was bad. It was given by God. It's good. It's just imperfect. But as the law from before has a high priest, so we too have a high priest. 
But our high priest is not in the lineage of men. He's not of the tribe of Levi or one of the sons of Aaron. Our priest is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Our priest is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the righteous, which he has spent a whole chapter on previously. Jesus is the greatest high priest. Notice his atoning work is finished. One who is seated at the right hand. You'll note as we went through the book of Leviticus last year, there are no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. There is furniture, but there are no chairs. A priest, as he was ministering, was always ministering. There was always work that needed to be done. The sacrifices were continual. There was always more sins that needed to be covered. There was always the next year on the Day of Atonement when his sins, the sins of the high priest, needed to be covered before he could also make atonement for the sins of the people. Ongoing sacrifice. Millions of animals killed. Millions of liters of blood shed. And yet, what does it say in verses 3 and 4? Every high priest offers gifts and sacrifices, but our high priest offered himself. He is the gift. He is the sacrifice. And his sacrifice is perfect. And as we read in our liturgy, what is Jesus' last word from the cross? It is finished. His work is done. The sacrifice has been made. There is no more a need for sacrifices for sins. His sacrifice atones. So it says in chapter 7, he is able to save those all the way through to the uttermost who put their faith in him. His atoning work is finished. It is done. He has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Notice he is also the king of kings. Where is he seated? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is not just our great high priest. He is also king of kings and lord of lords. He is the all-powerful, almighty one, creator of heaven and earth, who became human for us and is still human. We will see him one day and we will see the scars in his wrists and the scars in his feet that he bore for us. He fully identifies with us, fully God and fully man on our behalf. This king does not take his authority for himself and use it selfishly. He is not insecure in the power that he holds. This king uses his power for the benefit of the others. Of others. Somebody posted on Good Friday, if you knew it was your last day on earth, would you spend it washing someone else's feet? If you knew it was your last day on earth, would you kneel before the one who would betray you and send you to the cross? Would you wash his feet? That is how our Lord and Savior, that is how our King of kings and Lord of lords spent his last day on earth, knowing, of course, that it wasn't going to be his last day on earth. Praise the Lord. He serves in the fourth place in the heavenly realm. Notice in verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In verse 5, it says that the, the priests of old served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It's hard for us to imagine what Solomon's temple looked like. 
But even the disciples in Jesus' day were in awe of the second temple. One that when it was erected, old men cried because it was not as glorious as the one that they knew before. And yet even this temple drew awe from those that saw it. And yet how devastating on a much larger scale than those who have a painting that has been in their home and in their family for many years and find out that it's a copy and that it's a fake. How do you think that Jews would feel to know that this glorious temple in all of its majesty is simply a copy? It's just a shadow of the real. It's not the real. It's merely a copy of the real. Read Isaiah 6. Read Revelation 4 and 5. The throne room of God is splendor beyond our capability to articulate in words. Those that have seen it have had a hard time writing down what it looked like. Jesus serves in the heavenly realm, in the true tabernacle, the true tents. And his covenant is superior. It is enacted on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second. What is the key problem with the Mosaic Covenant? The key problem with the Mosaic Covenant is the key problem of all of life. It's us. What did God say in the Mosaic Covenant? If you obey my commands, you'll receive my blessings. But if you disobey my commands, you'll receive judgment. The problem in the world is not out there, it's in here, it's you and it's me. We're the problem. And so this covenant, although it is good, is imperfect. Because we will always fail. Every single one who was baptized this morning said that. And that is true of everybody in here. That's true of me. And so what is this promise? What is this better covenant This glorious promise appears in Jeremiah 31 and it's quoted at length here in Hebrews 8. And notice then in the second place this morning, Jesus' glorious promises. What do we find in these promises? In the first place, we find great unity. In verse 8, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. At the time that this covenant is given, Jeremiah is prophesying and Israel has already gone into captivity. The divided kingdom never had a good king in the north. Israel never had a king that followed God. Starting with Jeroboam all the way through. We can name some of the names. Ahab, most notorious among them, amongst others. And after generations of long suffering, God allows the Assyrians to come down and take Israel into captivity. Now what would that do for someone that had even common sense If my premise is because I'm a child of God, therefore I can sin and do whatever I want and God will never ever hold me accountable for that sin. And yet I watch my fellow Jews go into captivity to of all people, the Assyrians. Even common sense would dictate, well then we need to get our act together. And yet what does Judah do? The exact same thing as Israel. They had good kings. They also had bad kings. And as a nation, they are entirely faithless. They run from God 
to other gods that are not gods. And God continually brings them prophets. Jesus talks about this in the parable. I sent you prophet after prophet, and what did you do? You beat them up. You killed some of them. You denied what they had to say. And the last of all, I sent you my son, and you even killed him. And yet, what does God say? There's coming a day when I'm going to bring Israel and Judah together. But notice also verse 11, what does he say? They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There is no pecking order in the kingdom of God. His disciples were all the time trying to figure out who was the best. Who's the greatest? Two of them even sent their mother. What does Jesus say? The first shall be last. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be least. Great unity is coming because of this new covenant. There is internal wisdom coming. Notice what he says in verse 10a. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. The law is great external wisdom. The nation of Israel was blessed by it. Whole Psalms are written about it. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. 176 verses, only three or four of which don't mention the law of God. David loved the law of God. It's good, but it's not perfect because it is from the outside in, but as Jesus says, what needs to change is the inside. And that's what this new covenant is going to bring. It's going to radically transform our minds. It's going to radically transform our hearts. So we will not only know from what we hear and read, we will know from inside of our own minds, but we also know because there's a change in our desires. We won't just know the truth, we will want to know the truth. We won't just obey the truth, we will want to obey the truth. We will see the truth as good and beautiful. On Good Friday, in one of the lines of the video, it says, the cross is grotesque as an instrument of torture. But to us, as believers in Christ, it is beautiful. Do you know the beauty of God's grace? Do you delight in him? It will also bring us into deeper relationship with God in the last half of verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is true in the Old Testament. Leviticus says this, Exodus says this, but this new covenant brings this to reality in a much deeper and profound way. There's no doubt about this relationship. There's no insecurity this time around. Israel was unfaithful to God numerous times. The whole book of Hosea adequately and accurately depicts that. As an unfaithful spouse, who was Israel before God set his affection on her? An outcast, nothing, slaves in Egypt. And God loved her and brought her out and made her a great nation, the pinnacle of which was the kingdom of Solomon. And we get a glimpse of what will one day be in the kingdom, where the nations of the world came to Israel to see God in all of his glory, to see wisdom. And what did they do with that? Even Solomon himself, before he dies, casts God away, worships other gods, 
What did the nation of Israel do? They're unfaithful. We are unfaithful. And yet God is always faithful to us. But this covenant has something that the old covenant did not have. Notice verse 12. Full forgiveness. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What is offered to us because of Christ, what is real because of what we celebrate this weekend and in reality celebrate every Sunday, what is real because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is real is full forgiveness of sins. We struggle to believe that we are loved and forgiven and free, but in Jesus Christ, it's true. It's not false. It's not just a copy. It's not fake. It's real. In Christ, we are fully forgiven. We know this for many reasons. God says before Christ goes to the cross, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus Christ rose back to life from the dead, proving that the sins of man were covered, were atoned for. The propitiation satisfaction had been made for all of our sin. Jesus conquered sin and its result, death. And when he cried out, it is finished from the cross, that veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom and access to his father was now fully open. No more restrictions. No more cherry beam on the curtain. Symbolic of protecting God's holiness. No more, as Moses found out, where God hid him so he could only see the backside of his glory. No more Peter, James, and John seeing a glimpse of Jesus' glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. Now his people can be in his presence, fully forgiven, completely transformed, so that when God says, be holy as I am holy, it's now a reality. And so lastly, it leads to transformed hearts and lives. What is the problem with the old covenant? Verse 9, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. They did not continue in that covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They were judged. But this covenant brings with it not just wisdom, not just holiness and righteousness, not just gentleness and goodness. This covenant gives us the power in order to follow it. This covenant comes with internal transformation. Transformation from the inside out, making us different people. People that have a desire after him. This covenant makes us see the cross and where some see something grotesque, we see something beautiful. This covenant brings with it where some call this book foolish. We see it as wise. Or some deny even the existence of God. This covenant enables us to see that not only is he alive and is he real, he is good and he is beautiful. This covenant is a better covenant as Christ is the best high priest because this is real. This isn't a copy. 
even some of the other ways of thinking that were described in some of the testimonies this morning. They have a piece, perhaps, of the truth, but they're only copies. They're not real. There's only one message that is real, and that message is we are great sinners, but there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me, but all who repent and have faith in me, I will bring to my Father and lose none of them. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is real. He is the best. Do not follow after other things. They are all inferior to him. (laughs) That is the message of Hebrews And that is the message of Hebrews chapter 8. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You are glorious. This is not some cosmic egotism on your part. This is true. There was nothing except you, and you spoke all things into existence. You are a life-giving, outward-focused, others-oriented God. You are love in yourself. You are truth in yourself. You do not need our worship as if you lacked anything. But you love us more than we could possibly have fathomed. Father, this is real. This is not just something that a small group of individuals made up 2,000 years ago. These events happened. This is real. The resurrection is real. And as was prayed, this is the key. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, If Jesus did not rise back to life from the dead, then we are of all men most miserable. But it's true. He did rise back from the dead, giving us hope that we can as well and have life and life more abundant. Father, thank you for the glorious person of your son and the glorious promises that you have given that are true in him and applied to us through your Holy Spirit. And everyone in here this morning, not just the six that were baptized that have experienced this in their life, are walking, living, breathing testimonies to the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.